Today we sit down with Lois McClatchy from Alliance Defending Freedom International to talk about pro-life news and wins from around Europe. Stay tuned. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter, host of the show, and with me on the other side of the screen is my good friend and wonderful co-host and speaking partner at the upcoming Crash Course, Cameron Kose. How are you, sir? I am doing well. I am super fired up that in like three short weeks here, we will not be recording virtually together. We will be recording in the same um, cozy little office. We snuggle up together in my little um, background here. Um, we might even be able to show the same microphone. It'll be super, super cool. I am looking forward to it. Looking forward to the Calgary Crash Course. We're going to talk more about that at the end of the show, but I am doing well. How are you, sir? I am also doing really good. I'm excited for the trip to Calgary uh, to join you and the team to, 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 to equip people with pro-life apologetics, with strategy on how we can fight abortion here in Canada. Cam, uh, you want to talk about the crash course briefly before we dive into our conversation? Let's do it. Yeah, we're, we're, we are hosting a two-day crash course, August 20th and 21st, a Friday, Saturday. It's going to be a Friday evening, all day Saturday kind of jam. Um, Peter, you and I are speaking at it. We're going to be doing a lot of abortion in Canada, understanding where we're at, how we got here, how we can start um, getting our way out of this mess, and then a full day of training on the Saturday for how to have good, compelling, and compassionate conversations about abortion. And then you're going to get to join Peter and I in doing some actual outreach. You're going to get paired up with whether one of us or with one of our incredible team members here in Calgary. We're going to do some door knocking, talking to people about abortion in Canada. I know that sounds intimidating. Don't worry. You're going to listen to the first couple of conversations we have. We're going to be there as a safety net through all of your conversations as well. So you can check that out. We're going to put the, the um, link in the show notes below. I'm really looking forward to it. Not only that, but we have two kind of cool opportunities that go along with it. We never actually do this with our other crash courses, but we figured we're in summer. A lot of people are, are trying to weigh this against other vacation opportunities and whatnot. So Peter, you and I are going to lead some pretty cool expeditions on the Wednesday before Crash Course. Let me look at what date that is. That is Wednesday, August 18th. I will be leading um, a group of whomever wants to join me into a, 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 a hike in the Canadian Rockies um, out in the Canmore area. We're going to be heading out there. We're going to be doing a, a very moderate kind of hike. You don't have to worry about being a crazy alpinist or anything like that. Um, join me for that. And then Thursday, you and I, Peter, together are going to be taking a team of people to Banff, which is one of the top um, destinations, um, I, I think, globally. Heart of the Canadian Rockies. We're going to see some of the, the biggest sights and sounds of the place. I'm really looking forward to that. So you can join us for those Wednesday, Thursday opportunities. You've got all day Friday 
on your own if you'd like. And then Friday evening, we'll start the crash course. And then after that, we're also doing a special kind of um, keynote address on the Saturday evening. It's not necessarily connected with the crash course, but if you're only able to make the Saturday evening, or if you want to make the crash course and the Saturday evening, you can absolutely do that. Check out the link in the show notes, register yet meet Peter and I in person. And you may also get to experience the official launch of the Pro-Life Guys swag that we've been talking about forever. I got our shipment of mugs in the mail. I got a bunch of mugs that are ready to roll, a bunch of thank you cards. We're finalizing t-shirts and um, scotch glasses by the end of the week here. Um, time of recording, so we'll have them. Lord willing, in time for the crash course, we'll also have some stickers and, and bookmarks and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm really looking forward to it. I really hope that you're able to join us wherever you're coming from, um, whether you're from Calgary, whether you're commuting to Calgary, whether you even want to um, fly internationally. I have no idea what the border situation looks like. And so that's probably a little bit more complicated. But especially if you're somewhere in Canada, please join us in Calgary, Alberta, August 20th and 21st for our um, 24 hour crash course in pro-life apologetics. Cam, you are making me more and more excited about this. I was really excited, but just hearing you talk about it, you're a great pitch, uh, great pitcher, uh, crash course. Yeah, you're great at giving the crash course pitch. I was going to say. <laughs> so thank you. For uh, that. I'm the back catcher on my baseball team. I don't do any pitching. I haven't pitched since I was like eight. <laughs> so I'm the back catcher, but I will pitch a crash, crash course uh, whenever I can. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Perfect. Before I introduce our guest, I just want to do a quick shout out to a regular listener of ours. Not only is he a regular listener, but he also shares uh, shares with others about our podcast. His name is David Curry. I want to encourage everyone to be like David, to listen to the podcast and to share it with your friends. Uh, so thank you, David, for doing that. Our conversation today is with Lois McClatchy. She serves as a communications officer for ADF, which is Alliance Defending Freedom International and UK. She works with journalists and press representatives to advocate for fundamental freedoms in what she calls the court of public opinion. Uh, and she does this both in written pieces and through public speaking. Her, her writings can be found on uh, in the Sunday Times, the Times, National Review, the American Conservative and more. Before beginning her current role, McClatchy, uh, Lois McClatchy was a legal analyst on ADF International's UN advocacy team at the Human Rights Council in Geneva. There she provided member state representatives with key legal resources and a mandatory language which promotes the inherent value of every person. She's a, she is an alumnus of ADF International's Veritas Scholarship under which she completed training on international law, communications, and argumentation. Wow, um, I am really looking forward to this conversation. Um, she has accomplished a lot. She's done a lot. She's written a lot, especially on the abortion issue and other pro-life issues as well. So here's our conversation with Lois McClatchy. Lois, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Now, as I mentioned in the opening introduction, you work for ADF International and ADF UK. And we want to talk about, uh, you know, some of the work you do and some of the wins that we're seeing on the abortion front across Europe. But before we do that, we'd love to learn a little bit more about you. So could you share with us uh, perhaps your journey to, to ADF International and ADF UK and, and maybe talk a little bit about your passion for the abortion issue as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you um, for allowing me to introduce myself. I uh, grew up as a Christian and a Christian home. Um, so I always had a kind of tendency uh, towards, I suppose, human rights issues or so something I was interested in. But I think I, I grew up in a kind of evangelical church. And, and as, as is typical for, for many during that era, we didn't hear too much about abortion from the from the pulpit. It wasn't something that my family would have particularly discussed or, or anything like that. Um, so it was when I was a little older, and I was looking into issues like human trafficking and, and other things that, that uh, Christians are rightly uh, very concerned about. And it led me to go to a program uh, that my organization, ADF International Run, it's called the Arate program. It's for young professionals and students who have um, a calling to be living out their mission um, and are looking kind of at what they want to be doing. And when I was there, uh, I just had a great talk from somebody who I think you're very familiar with, Miss Stephanie Gray. Um, and, <laughs> and I thought her talk was fantastic. And I, I got uh, started delving in more into this issue. And as somebody who I always had an interest in law, I thought about studying it. I um, was very much interested in the political realm and to see a human rights issue that was so severe, uh, yet had so little airtime and so little coverage in the legal sphere in politics and I mean especially in Europe is different I understand we're in different parts of the world but um, it had comparatively little discussion time uh, in the UK and in Europe uh, that really got me interested in finding out more and the kind of the passion kind of came from there and has grown and, and here I am. That is super, super cool. And and I love, I mean, I love how many of our guests, um, and Peter, you and I as well, can trace part of our story back to Stephanie Gray Connors, an, an incredible <laughs> life advocate. Um, audience members, if you don't know who Stephanie Gray Connors is, please check out her book, Love Unleashes Life. Um, she's got other books out there as well. She's a fantastic speaker. Um, Lois, I'm, I'm curious. So, Having this kind of revelation on on the pro life issue and being interested in politics, especially, I, I I have a huge amount of respect for people who want to um, wade into the the quagmire that often is politics. And and with abortion being legal in the UK from 1967, I believe um, onwards, was there when you were first getting involved in in politics in in the pro life issue and other kind of Christian value issues? Was there an atmosphere of hope? of this is a building movement that I want to be a part of, or was it more of a, well, somebody's got to start this. Did, did you find that there was an active and, and vibrant community going at the time, or did you feel as though you were kind of one of the pioneers of what is now, from people that we've spoken to, a growing pro-life sentiment in the UK, a, bro a growing pro-life movement? What was that like when you were first getting involved? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I started getting involved, let's say, maybe six years ago, something like that. And I think in those six years, I've really seen it become more organic and more, it's the people in the area who want to be involved in building pro-life culture and building pro-life policy in their area, which I think is really exciting. Um, it used to be more that there was those of us who were pro-life, but we had to kind of look online and look overseas to get resources and to get information um, and to get ideas even. Um, but I think, yeah, what I've seen is that more British people want to see a a pro-life culture in Britain where Polish people see a pro-life culture in Poland and etc etc so that's been really exciting and it shows the um the, I don't know the spark of one pro-life vision can really multiply uh in an area so I think that can never be underestimated if there's a person you know who is in an area where it feels like I don't know maybe if they're in you know Paris or somewhere who's it's, it's very very liberal and it seems like they have 
and have a very very tough battle on their hands well all of my every european city all they all have you know the similar story starting stories um of being in, in situations where abortion is is very very you know praised in society um, so it is a lot of hope there to see that growth yeah, we've been we've been excited to see that growth as well. We had Eileen Goodison on from CBR UK. We had Robert Cahoon on from 40 Days for Life to talk about some of the things that are happening um, with their organizations and some of the changes they're seeing, some of the lives that are being saved. And it's been extremely encouraging for us. Um, you know, we often see what's happening in our own culture here, and, and we're often inundated by the sort of leftist leaning news outlets, the mainstream media in our nation and yours. Um, that likes to to act like abortion is is a human right, uh, and everyone that is sane and rational is uh, you know supports that very fundamental human right and wants everyone throughout the world to receive it. But it's really really cool to see uh, in so many different nations that there are these movements popping up, people popping up um, who are getting active, getting involved, and then that's just spreading, right? What, like you said, one person's vision, one mission. Uh, is bought into by so many others who want to join but aren't just sure, aren't really sure how to start it. Let's talk a little bit about ADF International. So you joined, um, you did a program um, with them. I can't remember what it was called. What was that program called that you, <laughs> you said? Uh, yeah, I just so I did when I was a student. I did the Arate program, and I was about nineteen or twenty. Okay. Uh, so I was just an undergraduate student, and that really gave me the vision. And it was and went to do a, a law degree, an LLM in human rights law, and after that, when I graduated, I I came back to work for, for IDF International. Sweet. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about maybe like, why did you decide to go back to ADF International and make this a full-time gig? And, and what are some of the projects you've been working on uh, as a, as a team member at ADF International? Sure. Well, let me introduce a little bit about our, our organization. So we are um, a legal advocacy group, a faith-based legal, legal advocacy group. And we support fundamental freedoms and the human um, dignity of all people. Um, so we are looking at issues of um, supporting religious freedom, supporting the right to life, upholding the family, guaranteeing parental rights, um, and making sure that everyone can speak freely um, about what they believe. Um, so it's a wide gambit of, of issues, um, but there's things that we're all really passionate about. Uh, we all feel that we're called to be to be doing this uh, across the world. And it really is um, across the world. We're headquartered here in Vienna, where I am uh, today. We have offices um, at all the major um, European institutions and uh, Organization of American uh, States and, and various different international institutions across the world. And that's because our model is, it was, works on, on three different levels, actually. Firstly, we have um, support and funding for lawyers on the ground who take cases forward about our issues to impact law and culture in their um, area. But we also have an in-house team of lawyers at international institutions like the UN, like the EU, OAS, um, different places around the world, and they're able to target the root causes. So often we found that when we were advocating at country level, they were just importing a lot of things from international and these uh, very liberal institutions that were um, making kind of human rights declarations that were not legally binding, but would have been misleading. Um, so we saw that there was a problem coming down from the top. So we made sure that we had um, an influence there, a uh, positive influence there for, for life and religious freedom. Um, and we also are involved in training, which I already talked about a little bit. So we're training up the next generation to be able to advocate for these things. 
So I was very attracted to Data International for those values, for their professional approach and their commitment um, to seeing a better future in that sense. Um, so I actually started off my, my ADF International career at the UN. I was um, a legal analyst there for two years. As I was based in Geneva, which is the hub of human rights, so they say, <laughs> um, and I was working at the Human Rights Council, and I was seeing a lot of, I was working a lot on the life issue. Um, I was seeing a lot of countries there who came in with very pro-life cultures, uh, a lot of African nations, Middle Eastern, who have pro-life laws, pro-life cultures, and they were constantly um, being um, kind of influenced or manhandled by kind of more powerful countries into agreeing to things, um, agreeing to change their culture, change their pro-life policies, often in exchange for receiving aid, for receiving something that they legitimately needed. You know, COVID-19 relief, for example, uh, was tied to abortion measures. Um, so yeah, I definitely saw a lot of unfair treatment. It definitely made me extremely passionate about the pro-life uh, cause while I was there. Um, but yeah, it was a really good experience and you know, I learned a lot about international law and about, um, I guess, international development and, and the ways that we can support um, a lot of international uh, or, or pro-life countries around the world uh, to, to maintain their pro-life laws before they kind of become like us. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, from there, I, I, I enjoyed that work, but I really... Um, I guess I like the sound of my own voice, right? So, <laughs> so I moved over to do media. <laughs> um, I so I, I enjoyed working kind of on the the legal advocacy side of things, but yeah, I really enjoyed talking about it and, and getting other people excited about it and sharing uh, the pro life message and, and and kind of helping to transform the culture because I think we can. And you know, I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but we see there's examples across the world where there's been a legal win, but you haven't won the culture with it, so it's not sustainable. Um, so I feel very passionate about making sure that at ADF International, we're not only winning in court, but winning in the court of public opinion. Uh, so that's what has led me here today. Um, <laughs> so I've been enjoying writing and speaking and getting people to, trying to get people to listen to me. <laughs> That is so, so essential. Obviously, this, this entire podcast is about equipping people with the tools that they need to engage in the court of public opinion, as you mentioned. And I'm curious about that process. So going through the ADF International website, you guys have so many incredible um, projects and campaigns on the go in so many different countries. And I'm curious, as the communications director, as somebody who's dealing with the talking points on different campaigns, different um legal challenges in different countries and whatnot. Maybe if you could speak a little bit to the process of, of the research in, are you using the same talking points in all different countries? Does it work to use the same talking points in Northern Ireland as it does in Hungary and Malta? Does it work to use the same talking points when you're talking about Down syndrome in the UK as when you're talking about um, religious freedoms in Poland? Maybe share a little bit about what that work entails for you as the communications director, as you mine into what the, the cultural heartbeat is in a particular country and how you tap into that to resonate with those people, I guess. Sure. I'll have to downgrade myself a little bit. You gave me a promotion. I'm not the director. I'm just a communications officer. Um, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely I'll be part right. of your campaign for that promotion. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you do have to be like there isn't a one size fits all 
for Europe, for the wider world, for anything like that. It really has to be local. I think people listen far more when it's something that affects them locally. Um, and I think a major part of, of running a campaign that, that is about a global issue, but it feels local, is people, putting people at the center of it. Um, so quite often when we have a campaign, often it is tied to a court case because we are a legal organization. So normally we are um, impacting law through the court. So, for example, it wasn't a pro-life case, but a, a recent example was that we were um, supporting overturning a, a worship ban in Scotland, where I'm from originally. Um, so we had um, a local Glasgow priest who was quite well known just for being himself. And he was by putting him at the center of this campaign and he had this mission to, to overturn this worship ban so that people could uh, attend church during a pandemic. I think people really related to him and his story and his passion for being able to open up his uh, Christian community again. So he, um, yeah, putting him at the center of the story made that campaign, which was about a global thing that was happening everywhere, but it made it feel Scottish. And it made Scottish people think, oh, this is about me. I can imagine myself being in Canon Tom's parish and wanting to go to church. Uh, and I think we see that on the pro-life issue as well. And when we get into it, we'll talk a little bit about um you know, Heidi Carter, who has been kind of setting the pro-life world alight, I like to think. Um, so she is a, a very winnable um, and lovable character in the pro-life story. And people relate to her. I think people in the UK relate to her because she's she could be your, your friend next door. Um, and yeah, so I think putting people at the center is critical and making sure they are local and relatable to, as, to the greatest extent possible. And then, yeah, of course, it's messaging. I mean, there's you can see wildly different. I think probably the, the biggest difference in messaging in the West is probably the US and Europe, like very, very different styles, different messages that appeal to a different audience. Um, so that's the, kind of like the biggest divide. And then, you know, even there's cultural niches within, you know, East and West Europe and, you know, looking at their historical backgrounds and some things would appeal and some things wouldn't because maybe if they're from a communist background, it might be different from being from France. Um, so it definitely is something to be, be noting and taking care of and making sure that the, the messaging we're using is really winnable to those hearts and minds and the individual. Well, let's talk about Heidi Carter. We wanted to have you on to talk about some of the pro-life wins in Europe that you're seeing with ADF International that you're involved with. Uh, so let's go right to the UK. You brought up Heidi Carter, uh, who is taking on the UK government. Can you share with us a little bit about that story? And uh, yeah, what are we to know about, about what's going on there in the UK? Absolutely. Well, I'll say first of all, we're not representing Heidi, but we uh, I just love her story. So I want to <laughs> I want to, to tell that one, especially um, I think it is one of the greatest sources of hope in the <laughs> European pro-life movement at the moment. Um, so Heidi is a 25 year old girl um, with Down syndrome. And she um, said that her mom cried when she was born because she said that she thought that she would never get to be a bridesmaid. And well, last year. Heidi got to get married, so she was not only a bridesmaid, but a bride, and she had a beautiful wedding and has um, a marriage that is constantly kind of shown uh, about how happy she is and how great um, her life has turned out to be and what a joy she is to the people around her. And she really has an infectious smile and a winnable um, character on television. So Heidi, um, Heidi Carter now, her name is that she's married, she is challenging the UK's abortion law on the grounds that it discriminates against persons with disabilities. So in the UK, you can have an abortion on mental health grounds, which really translates to, I mean, you can claim to have a, a mental health ground for abortion and no one will ask a question. 
and you can get an abortion basically for any reason on that principle up to 24 weeks. But if your um, child has a disability, and that can be anything from Down syndrome to a club foot um, to um, a cleft palate, um, that can mean that you get an abortion up to 40 weeks to the day of birth. Um, so Heidi is challenging this guy, not on, a, on an abortion is wrong kind of argument, but on the fact that it is wrong that disabled children have less rights than non-disabled children in that situation, which is a really, really interesting perspective. Um, because in doing so, like, you have to, at some extent, acknowledge, well, like, if we're, we think this, then we must be acknowledging there's some sort of humanity in, in the woman, which, of course, there very much is. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it's it's an argument that is basic. It's it's discrimination, and it is discriminatory. Uh, why should a child lose their life in their in their fortieth week just because they have a cleft lip? There's no reason for that at all. Um, so Heidi has um, been taking this case forward. She challenged um, the UK's law. She effectively sued the government, which I think is quite cool. Um, she so she sued them on the sixth of July. Um, and we are waiting to hear about how that verdict will will go. Um, I don't know. I, I I wouldn't be able to make a call about whether it's you know going to be a successful case or not. I really don't know. But what has happened in the in the repercussions of her story going going forward has been fantastic in its own right. Um, firstly, I think there's been a much wider conversation in the UK about disability and affirming the rights of those who have disabilities, whether they're born or unborn, and seeing that there is something wrong with a law that discriminates um, against the child simply because they, they might be born with such a, with, yeah, with a disability. Secondly, it's also kicked off and uh, brought a lot of media attention to um, where similar laws are being challenged in, in different parts of the UK. In Northern Ireland, uh, there's a bill going forward right now and uh, it's passed its second stage of reading, uh, private members bill, and it um, is also challenging uh, Northern Ireland on the same grounds. They have a principle where it's up to 12 weeks is decriminalized, up to 24 weeks is on mental physical health grounds, and up to 40 weeks is for disability. Um, so they'll be challenging that again and seeing if they can reduce that 40 weeks down to 24 weeks. What's encouraging to me looking at these bills, sorry to be talking on and on, I hope I'm not witching, <laughs> but what's encouraging is that I remember speaking about this issue years, like, you know, maybe six, five years ago um, with disabled rights activists who, um, whether they were prolific or not, did think this was discriminatory as most disabled rights advocates do. And they were saying, well, we're just worried, and I was speaking to one who was particularly pro-life and she was like, well, I'm worried that if we challenge this, They'll say, yes, it's discriminatory, so therefore abortion up to birth for everybody will backfire. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, that is, that is a bit of a cause for concern. It would be awful if we ended up making things worse. But here we are six years later, and it certainly feels like that doesn't feel as much of a danger anymore. I mean, I hope I don't have to eat my words at some point in a few months, but... Um, it doesn't feel like that's as much of a danger. And I think that's because it has been established that although the UK is not a pro-life culture, it's not 100% a pro-choice culture. It's, most people, the majority of people do not support abortion up to 40 weeks. And you talk to the average person on the street 
and they'll say oh yeah I support abortion you say oh do you support abortion up to birth and they go oh no that seems a bit extreme maybe up to you know 21 two three four weeks you know you ask why and, you know, and different reasons but they go it just feels too extreme to, to abort a child who could have be healthily born um so it is a, an encouragement I think to have seen that conversation shift from something of real fear that the balance could tip against us and against the pro-life view to being something that people are actually a lot more tuned in and turn on to the fact that life in the womb is, is valuable at least at the very least at its early stage at its later stages um so yeah that's that's a nice thing to to be able to watch Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and to pull on that thread a little bit further, I, I'm curious about the collaboration with groups like disability rights groups and whatnot, and, and these opportunities that sometimes pro-lifers have to collaborate with groups that they may not have collaborated with in the past. I know that in Canada here, there's been a lot of collaboration between dis- disability rights groups and anti-euthanasia assisted suicide groups because the Canadian government seems to be looking for any and all opportunities to kill as many people as they want, both at the beginning and at the end of life. Um, and there's been a, a very, very interesting, very cool um, collaboration between those kind of groups. Maybe what has it been like working with groups and drawing these groups that maybe have not really considered abortion as a relevant factor in their their primary mandate, I suppose, and then realizing that that they actually do need to take a stand on abortion what has it been like working with them and maybe even the educational component that okay here are some talking points that that you guys can be using to better articulate why this is a um a a heinous um law in the first place i suppose what has that process been like for you guys yeah i love it (laughs) it's one Mm. of the things i love actually about about adf international like our, our a stands for alliance alliance defending freedom and we're all about making those connections and working with whoever will agree with us on one issue. We build allies on a single issue basis. So we're happy to to work with somebody to to move a, a conversation forward. And uh, yeah, no, I've absolutely loved collaborating. I think uh, one thing that has been an interesting collaboration, another example, as well as disability example recently, very recently in the UK, maybe last week, the week before, is that... Um, there's a bill going through Parliament in the UK right now that is a, a huge threat to freedom of speech, and it's um, all, very much against freedom of protest and freedom of assembly. Uh, now we're concerned about that because it targets um, pro-life counsellors who want to be able to stand outside a clinic and offer help, um, prayer support, financially, whatever it is, um, to be able to support women who are in a vulnerable situation, have felt they've been coerced into abortion, don't want to go through this, want to assess their options. Uh, We're very supportive of um, pro-life groups being able to do that. Um, Now, the bill um, has opponents on our side of things, but it also has people who oppose it because they want to see freedom of protest. And some of these are very pro-choice feminist organizations who want to maintain their freedom of protest and rightly so, of course, they have the right to, to speak and to, to voice their opinion and to, to protest if they want. Um, so because so many, a huge coalition of actors um, have been opposed to this principle of shutting down the ability to speak, to talk, whether it's about pro-life issues or other issues, um, we there was an amendment last week, I think last week, maybe the week before, um, that was going to be specifically building uh, what's called buffer zones um, into the bill, uh, which is the criminalization of, of standing near an abortion clinic. And that was um, comp- 
completely defeated uh, in, in Parliament and the, the party, the leading party actually whipped against it. And it's because there's been such strong opposition from many different fields of society and it's been given a really strong voice of like, actually, no, we want to be able to protest. Now, there's it's very likely in the other parts of the bill, we won't be saying like, they'll be on different sides. Um, but it was really great that at least we can see something move forward on that um, side of things. Um, so, yeah, no, I love the, the fact that we, as the pro-life movement, are able to build coalitions and alliances um, across many different causes. And, yeah, the disability one is, is certainly seems to be the, the winning one just now, which is really exciting. Very cool. Very cool. I, I love the collaborations as well. I love the collaborations between different denominations of churches and whatnot that we're seeing here in Canada and I'm sure around the world as well. I think it's so cool for people to be able to um, work towards a, a common goal. And that's really neat, like you said, on on the buffer zones um, to, to get a party whip on that, to, to make sure that doesn't go into into law. Unfortunately, we've got um, buffer zones around many of the abortion facilities here in Canada, um, which is a massive frustration. But um, if, if we're going to jump across, um, I was going to say across the pond, but we're not going to go all the way across the pond to America. If, if we just go to a, a different part of the UK, I'd love to hear a little bit of, you've, you touched briefly on Northern Ireland and not only the um, the disability um, component of the Northern Ireland legislation regarding abortion. But obviously, they've been in turmoil with the overturning of long-standing pro-life legislation there, following in the footsteps of, of the tragic collapse of pro-life legislation in Ireland as well. And I'm curious about if, if there is a role that ADF International is playing in whether it, the court of public opinion or, or the, the formal courts of, of legislature and whatnot in Northern Ireland. What's going on in Northern Ireland um, in, from the, the perspective of ADF International? Is this something that um, you guys are heavily focused on? Is this something that is on your radar but maybe isn't a, a priority at this point? Where, where are things at in Northern Ireland? Um, so there's other groups um, that are more focused on Northern Ireland at this this moment. Um, so we try in the UK, there's a few of us pro-life organizations, not thousands, but there's a few. So we try and make sure that we are um, collaborating, but making sure we're all covering slightly different bases to make sure that, that we have the maximum impact. So uh, we have an interest and support uh, some work that's going on, but um, yeah, we're not kind of the headliners right now on Northern Ireland. Um, but there is, yeah, there's a, a lot of... I mean, Northern Ireland just breaks my heart, as I'm sure it does you. Um, it was so, so, I think that was the most, I think that was the darkest day in pro-life history that that um, happened. So uh, for those who don't know that, that Northern Ireland had um, a, a complete um, pro-life law. They had no abortion whatsoever. They had um, complete, uh, completely illegal abortion. And um, only this year, just you know, very, very recently, uh, the UK took advantage of a political situation where Northern Ireland did not have a government in control uh, to lead the country. Uh, there was, um, it's kind of hard to understand, I think, from outside of the UK, but we each have our own governments. Each region has its own uh, kind of national government. And then we have oh, like a, a UK government that just deals with our um, international law. Um, so whilst the Northern Irish government was not sitting in power because of various other political reasons, which don't matter, um, the UK government decided to override what would have been the will of the Northern Irish government to not ask the people. This was not done by referendum at all. And they imposed really, really um, awful abortion legislation. And so that I think I mentioned already is 12 weeks as decriminalized, which is a very new, like we don't have decriminalization much yet in Europe. 
Uh, so it was really progressive. Um, and it, well, I don't want to say progressive because that's not the right word. It was really bad. Um, <laughs> and then up to 24 weeks um, for um, mental or physical health reasons and up to 40 weeks for disability. And so it really was, yeah, I love to say that it's actually criminal. It's so bad. Anyway, um, so that was heartbreaking. But yeah, I think we can take a lot of hope in what um, action has been followed up with. So there's um, a case in the works of, of challenging through judicial review um, the current state of things as regards to disability. Uh, I think that's still in its quite early stages. Um, but I'm sure we can do a lot of digging online and, and find out more of that. I'm not an expert, unfortunately, on that particular case. Um, but there is yeah, a case moving forward, and I think it's on a similar vein to Heidi's. Um, there is um, a bill in the works going to the parliament, as I mentioned, that is also challenging that uh, on, a, on, on grounds of disability. So you really see a theme here. And I think it's encouraging because last year, I think, I don't know if you guys saw in Poland, um, that there was also um, a judicial decision to say that it was um, illegal to abort babies because they were disabled compared to a baby that was not disabled. Uh, which is kind of the same ruling that the principle that we're working on right now. And of course, it was a legal win, but it was not a win in, in the court of public opinion. I don't know how it was conveyed in Canada. I, I imagine it was protest groups and black T-shirts. And yep. yeah, <laughs> um, so that was really a kind of moment for me in realizing how important the court of public opinion is. And that this win is not tenable if it's going to be protested every day of the year. Like it, it's if it's if we're not winning the culture we're not winning pro-life really so i think even if i don't know how these court cases in northern ireland and uk are going to land i don't know but it is exciting that we're moving the cultural needle and you know great job to to the groups that are involved in doing that yeah i remember the cbc talking about um what was happening in poland and that's what it was like it was pictures of, of protesters it was the the perfect language of anti-choicers and you know the this terrible sort of sect of people that uh, really doesn't care for the rest of society. So that was that was fascinating to see, but a lot of uh, good things coming from Poland. So that, those are a few things that are happening. We have uh, you know, Miss Carter um, in the UK. We have some some of these court cases. Um, can you speak to some of the other wins that are happening as well, um, perhaps in the mainland? Um, you're far more familiar with them than we are. So uh, so take it away. What, what's what else is happening here, Lois? Sure. Uh, well, another great source of encouragement is on euthanasia. Um, so in the last year, there has been um, many, many countries who have been posed with uh, the question about whether to introduce euthanasia, and they've said no, uh, which has been really great. So um, there's been Portugal, Latvia and France, all kind of in the same two week span, um, rejected their uh, the legislation in Parliament. Uh, I think in France, it was quite funny. The, um, I think they filed something like 3,000 amendments to this legislation so that it would run out of time. <laughs> and so I guess it's kind of like a, or the French version of a filibuster, but I thought that was quite funny. Uh, and there's been, yeah, uh, various different countries have rejected it. I think uh, Portugal said that they, that the constitutional court, I, I believe it was, said that they were uncomfortable with the word uh, suffering or unbearable suffering. So I don't know what that means. Um, it's not definable. Um, so they actually knocked back the legislation on that principle because of course, uh, unbearable suffering is quite a subjective term. Someone can say that they have unbearable suffering because they are they have tinnitus or, or depression, which is awful. Uh, and we should be helping those people uh, rather than uh, condemning them to death. 
Uh, so that was recognized, which is uh, very encouraging. Only, uh, I think it was just this week in Ireland, yet again, um, in Ireland, they um, had uh, a bill failed uh, to introduce uh, euthanasia, uh, which is a really nice win for the pro-life movement there. I think they really needed <laughs> a boost and they got a boost. And I think that's really important. Um, and also lives will be saved uh, through this legislation. It's very uh, encouraging because a lot of the uh, people who responded to the consultation for euthanasia there uh, were elderly or were in the medical profession. And they all said they were very, very concerned about vulnerable people um, falling victim to euthanasia. Um, and I think, you know, having that personal perspective, if a government agent is told by an old lady that I'm scared that I, I don't want to die, <laughs> then how can they possibly vote for euthanasia legislation? So it really is um, really powerful. It shows um, the strength of public campaigning that that can be done. Um, so, you know, praise God, <laughs> all mm -hmm. across uh, Europe, euthanasia bills have been falling. The tricky thing about euthanasia is, of course, that it comes back all the time. I think in the UK, we fight off euthanasia about every two years. Uh, and it is something that is quite, um, I think, you know, it's kind of a war of attrition uh, as as many times as it is brought forward. We're going to have to put energy into to proving the, the worth of, of human life every single time. Uh, but it's encouraging to look across the continent and see that, that this is being successful. So it's a good boost. Mm-hmm. 100%. And, and I can only imagine um, that that probably as much as Canadians um, and, and pro-life Canadians who were concerned about euthanasia, we were pointing towards countries like Belgium and Netherlands and whatnot as they were introducing euthanasia legislation here in Canada as the slippery slope. I'm, I'm sure that you guys are probably pointing towards Canada now as like, we don't want to go down the road that, that Canada has gone down where now uh, mental health and, and minors and whatnot are now... Um, there, there's access and, and whatnot around assisted suicide euthanasia. And so that's super encouraging that we're seeing that um, defense of, of the protection of the weak and vulnerable at, at towards the end of life um, across mainland Europe. And I'm, I'm curious, um, there, there's a few other countries that really, really fascinate me in Europe. And I, I know that they're all obviously on the other side, uh, more into the Eastern Europe side. But I, I'd be curious about... Um, what your thoughts are on what's going on in Hungary and maybe even in Malta. I, I gave a talk just over a year ago and, and there's a, a very vocal fellow, wonderful man who is coming from Malta talking about the attacks on the pro-life legislation in Malta. Often, Peter and I have done a lot of coverage of what's going on in Latin America and South America with regards to the, the green tide of abortion support and the blue wave countering with pro-life um, um, response and whatnot. But I'm curious about what the take of ADF International is on what's going on in Hungary. I know there's there's a lot of convoluted stuff. And so I, I'm, I'm sure that that um, there's many things we could say about what's happening in Hungary. But with regards to their pro-family, pro-life legislation in there, and possibly about places like Poland, places like Malta, and, and possibly the attacks that they may be receiving right now, what is ADF International seeing um, encouragement wise and what are you preparing for to make sure that we continue to hold the fort um, and don't let this war of attrition um, whittle us down towards a defeat in in the coming decades i suppose yeah yeah that's a great question um yeah i've been particularly interested in following malta uh, myself i um saw a lot at the un um how much the EU can really influence smaller countries within its bubble to, to go along with what the majority of, kind of the richer countries would like to say. And I saw time and time again that, that Malta were in a position where they are really being pressured to, 
to sign, um, you know, a, a treaty or a, not a treaty, but a, a, a resolution which would have really undermined their, their pro-life laws. So, yeah, that was something I was really interested in. But I think it is a really cool miracle that Malta are still completely pro-life. Um, that really is just encouraging as a fact on its own. <laughs> um, and not only are they legally pro-life, but they're really culturally pro-life as well. And they see it as a real Maltese value. Um, but I think what um, I've been encouraged by is that there is great um, allies of the pro-life movement in Malta. And I think there is a recognition that they don't want to be the next Ireland. And they do have to watch out for that because Ireland were very, very comfortable. And this is not Northern Ireland that I was talking about, but um, the Republic of Ireland who voted in um, to legalize abortion uh, not long ago. Um, and Malta similarly have a Catholic culture like Ireland did. And it, it, wouldn't take, you know, it wouldn't take too much um, to change that. So there are um, people who are really investigate, investing in educational programs uh, and making sure that it isn't just assumed that people are pro-life because they're Maltese, but they're really being taught why they're pro-life and they're pro-life because human life starts in the way and how can we see that? Well, we can look at an ultrasound, we can look at what an abortion really looks like, we can experience and we can learn how to uh, and there's a great organization like uh, Life Network who have set up um, organizations to help pregnant women um, to be able to look after their children um, if they decide to decline abortion and, and not if it is possible in Malta for women to go to other countries to receive abortions. Um, but if they don't do that and they decide to choose life, they can have a lot of resources and help to equip them. So I think there's a real recognition that people have to be taking these initiatives in order to keep the pro-life culture going. So hopefully they can learn um, a little bit to make sure that they are preparing in advance um, on those issues, on education and on practical pro-life support. Um, so that, yeah, we're as EDF International, we tend to be um, supporting lawyers on the ground to be able to carry these things forward. And we're always looking for people who need support um, on protecting pro-life laws and things. So we're looking at local people to be able to do that. So it's, it's encouraging to see that. Um, I can't remember the other country you wanted me to talk about there. Uh, Hungary. Hungary. Um, our, our colleague Jonathan Van Maren <laughs> recently you. interviewed the, the president of Hungary, actually. And, and they've got a bunch of yeah pro-family, pro-life um, legislation there. I'm uh, curious about your take on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Yeah, the, Hungary have a really interesting situation in that their their abortion law is, is abortion is legal up to twelve weeks, which for Europe is fairly standard compared to Canada. I know <laughs> it seems like nothing, but for Europe, that's that's fairly standard. And um, so they're not particularly seen as a legally pro life country. However, they've really managed to turn things around by having extremely pro life policies in place to support women with children and it's not just it is including vulnerable women who would be considering abortion but also married women who would just be you know under a little bit of economic pressure and sometimes that can be all it takes for somebody to be looking up um, to go to an abortion clinic and we see from data in the UK that a lot of women who attend an abortion clinic are, are married and fairly stable and uh, just feel a little bit of, of economic pressure about having another child so what Hungary have done is they have brought in a load of policies, including you can get um, a discount on a car if you have a certain number <laughs> of children. Uh, they have policies to support um, grandparents to be caring for children to make sure that childcare is available. Um, they have uh, really built an infrastructure that supports the family and supports a woman to be a mother and to be able to work if she wants or to have financial security 
and throughout that they've really seen over the last 20 years they really I think I think it's half or or maybe more um their abortion rate which I mean coming from a culture like like what Hungary was uh, is really a remarkable uh, thing to see so it, it is really exciting um to see how these policies of just something sometimes it's just like a little bit of bit of help can go a really long way um, and it can really impact the culture and make sure that people are thinking more in a pro-life way of how can we help rather than, oh, she should simply get an abortion. Yeah, we've loved to see what's happening in Hungary. And we love the pro-life policies that we see, not just the the anti-abortion policies, which are great. And, and um, knowing that human life begins at fertilization, um, we, we need more and more of these anti-abortion policies, but also the policies to support women and, and, and men as well, mothers and fathers who have children. So that they're able to raise these children, they're able to educate these children, they're able to transport them to and from the places they need to go to. Um, I was reading one report a while ago um, that one of the reasons um, people, this was in the United States and Canada, but one of the reasons people only have two kids, um, I'm sure there are more reasons, but one of the reasons uh, or the theories they talked about was because they couldn't afford a larger vehicle. They couldn't put three kids in the back seat of uh you know three three uh what do you call it three car seats in the back seat of a car but they couldn't afford a minivan and so the option was not having more children and, and so policy like this helping people uh to really support their families to give the families what they need um i i, I lean a little bit towards the social policies uh in this regard if it means the abortion rate is going to decrease which we've seen in hungary and uh and if people are able to support their families so that's great um Anything else, uh, Lois, as we uh, slowly start to wrap up this conversation, um, are there other places in Europe where you've found a particular encouragement from the policies that are coming from the conversation that's happening or anything else? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's many that I can talk about and I would hate to, to, I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast who are saying, why didn't you talk about this country? Uh, but there's two that I'll raise. Um, firstly, I was really encouraged to learn recently that uh, Romania and Moldova uh, used to have, I think, some of the highest abortion rates um, in Europe. And over the last few years, I think the last five years, they've gone, they said, I think they had their one of their first marches for life. And now they have hundreds and hundreds of marches for life across their countries. Um, I had no idea they even had enough people to do this, but they do. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> and it does show that I've they are winning the culture. It is like, you know, all these marches contain a lot of people. Uh, so that was a hugely encouraging thing for me to see how things like events, simple events like a March for Life can really have such an impact, can multiply over time, and can reach a great number of people. And the second thing that I'll mention is looking more internationally. And so I mentioned that I used to work at, but I was an advocate for life at the United Nations. Um, and um, what I can see is, although I talked about countries being under a lot of pressure, uh, and, and at times that could be discouraging, um, but there's also a lot of hope. In the la in, it was last year when um, a lot of countries got together and they signed the Geneva Consensus Declaration, um, which was a declaration of, um, I think it was 35 states, I probably got that number wrong, um, who all agreed and believed that um, life is worth protecting in law, or at the very least, they shouldn't be told <laughs> what to do by another um, imposing body. Um, so that was really encouraging to see that so many countries were willing to jump on board and sign this declaration. It really nailed their colors to the mass internationally, and that could have, you know, that could have cost them 
um, but they were willing and they really saw the importance of this issue. And I'll say one more third point since you've asked um, <laughs> of things that I'm, I'm really encouraged about. And that's also to do with the pro-life movement itself. And it's to do with people being able to speak up and speak out. Um, we have in ATF International have been engaged quite prominently in the UK on free speech issues. We had um, a run of several university groups contact us in the last couple of years to say that they have been disaffiliated from their university, they're not allowed to be part of the student body uh, because they were pro-life, because they had pro-life views, because they didn't agree with the values that were being promoted by the university. Um, and for almost every single one, we've been able to approach the university and say, actually, under the Equality Act, you have to allow for freedom of speech. You have to allow these students to be able to participate in university life. Um, now, during the kind of middle of all that, we met a student called Julia, uh, Julia Rinkiewicz, and she was a pro-life midwife, uh, a midwifery student. She always wanted to be a midwife. She was this loved baby. She loved living baby. She loved mums. She loved getting, taking care of mums. She, um, while she was at Nottingham University, got involved in the pro-life society. She became their president. And she one day was handing out literature um, at the, you know, at the start of term, you probably had this at university as well. And they have like a freshers fair, right? And you know, all the students, they have different stalls and they have like, they're giving out sweets and they're trying to get you to sign up and you get those emails for the rest yep. of your life. So <laughs> they were handing out, uh, uh, or they were just, you know, standing there advertising they had a pro-life society and all were welcome to join and, and maybe they were doing an event, I don't know. Um, so her lecturer, her teacher, saw her do this and reported her and it resulted in her um, facing a suspension from the university and a fitness to practice investigation into her competence as a midwife. Um, so we were able to support her as we came alongside her whilst she was suspended and we managed to have that uh, overturned within a few months and um, after following uh, maybe nine months later uh, the university uh, apologized and gave her a settlement because they had uh, treated her so unfairly and discriminatory but what julia's story did was and it did catch a little media attention because it was so severe and such censorship of the poor life view that was clearly extreme and disproportionate um it kind of sparked a whole campaign and we managed to build up the Protect Free Speech website campaign and we gathered, I think it's over 25,000 signatures now of people who heard Julia's story and believed that no matter what someone's view is, if they're pro-life, if whatever their belief is, they should be allowed to express that on university campus. Universities should be places, of all places, should be where you can um, explore ideas, debate things, talk about things important to your future. Um, so there was a huge support for this in the UK and it's really built up political steam. And there's now a bill sitting before Parliament to say that um, that freedom of speech at universities should be protected. And they have incorporated three of the five proposals that we put forward with our campaign uh, to make sure that um, universities are thoroughly trained and held accountable to make sure that they are allowing for pro-life discussions to happen and, and all sorts of discussions to happen um, and to make sure that everyone feels that they can hear all students are welcome to hear the pro-life message let alone speak it um so that's really really encouraging that uh certainly in the uk and i think further afield too 
um, we are seeing a growing number of students um, and, and young people who are willing to put themselves out there to, to be able to speak up and to talk about something that's so important. Um, and I think that empowering, um, the empowerment of youth, the empowerment of people who are able to speak about this is going to come out of campuses eventually, they're going to graduate and they're going to be able to speak about this in their workplace and use uh, careers to, to put forward human rights ar arguments for, for life before birth. So I think there's, there's a whole lot to be excited about in the future. Um, so I don't know, that's, I think I've answered two of your questions in one there. What are ADF International up to in the UK right now? And what am I <laughs> most encouraged about? It's one and the same. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just want to highlight one point that's kind of been brought up multiple times, and that's on cultural engagement. Yeah, Kim, you mentioned about South and Central America uh, and the war of attrition that's happening there, the, the constant pressure from the United Nations, from global abortion supporters and so on uh, to promote abortion there. We see that in Europe as well. And that really gets to the importance of being engaged in the culture as just regular folks, being trained, knowing how to have conversations about these pro-life issues, because we know that if, if we win, you know, on a topic today, two years from now, it's going to come up again and the culture might shift at that point. There might be more support for the you know, euthanasia or the abortion bill that we are completely against and, uh, and we might lose there two years from now. And that really highlights the importance of being engaged in the culture, talking to your neighbors, um, getting involved with projects that um, like ADF International and, and other organizations as well. So Lois, as we wrap up, you talked about the Arate Academy that you took part of. There's the summit on religious freedoms. There's a Veritas scholarship and, and scholarship and other training that ADF International provides. How could someone get involved with AD, ADF International? Uh, where can we learn from you? Where can we sign up for some of these trainings or learn a little bit a little bit more about how we can be trained by ADF International? Sure, thanks for the question. Well, you can find out so much on our website. It's adfinternational.org. Um, uh, if you're in the UK, it's adf.uk, but I think most of your audience may be international. Um, and yeah, like you said, there is training for, for people at various steps of their career. We have the Blackstone Legal Fellowship for law students, and that's about training and equipping people to be using the law in their legal careers to be forwarding the case for life and to be protecting uh, fundamental freedoms for all people. Uh, there's the Arate program, which I spoke, to, spoke a little bit about, which is for students and young professionals. Um, to be training at that early stage of your career um, so you can find out a little bit more if that's you and if you want you have a kind of vocational calling but you want to explore more exactly about what that is and have uh, more in-depth training with some international leaders and experts and it's also a lot of fun with great people and um, there is Veritas Scholarship as we mentioned it's a one-year program it's kind of a graduate scheme um, so you can find out but more about that on our careers page on our website adfinternational.org uh, if you think you'd like to take a year out to be training with us and be involved in a, in both in court and in the court of public opinion. Uh, and yeah, for there's the summit, which is more for mid-career um, who want a little bit to come out of their career for just a second of reprieve and to refocus again on, on what we're doing as a movement and to be um, talented and excited about religious freedom again. So that's a little smorgasbord of all our trainings available. You can find out about them on our website. Gotcha. Um, one thing that we've started doing, Lois, and, and this will be um, something that we're going to be doing going forward. I, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions that are for our Patreon supporters exclusively. 
And so for those who are Patreon supporters, we love you. We appreciate you. I mean, we love all of our audience. We want to encourage you to consider becoming Patreon supporters so that we can do more and more. Um, but these two, two questions about a funny experience maybe that you've had working with ADF International, uh, a comical one that you've had, whether it's a, a translation breakdown or something like that. I'd love to ask you about that. And then I'd love to get your answer on the role that men have in the pro-life movement. Do you think we need more men? Do you think we have too many men? I'd love to get your two answers on that, but those would be just for our Patreon supporters exclusively. And so that's all from me, P Peter. You can, you can wrap things up from here. Yeah, for sure. That is coming right up. But before then, Lois, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us in the program. Thank you. It's been a great privilege to chat to you guys. That was Lois McClatchy from Alliance Defending Freedoms International and Alliance Defending Freedoms UK. Thank you so much for listening to that conversation. As we mentioned, I don't know if we mentioned this actually, but I will mention it right now. Um, the the uh, website links for ADF International and ADF UK will be in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about some of the training that ADF International provides, some of the resources they provide, or even if you just want to learn more about their work in the UK or in Europe, do check out the, the website links, which you can find in the show notes. Cam, can you help us wrap this up? Do you have any thoughts? And uh, maybe if you could share a little bit about the crash course once again to put it in people's minds uh, as we get closer to the date. 100%. So I, I found that super, super interesting. Peter, you and I have touched on a few different European situations already. We've we've talked in depth, obviously, about six months ago now about um, the Republic of Ireland. And so really, really interesting to get an inside look um, and, and really a survey of all these different um, countries in Europe and what's happening there, the free speech issues, the pro-life issues. I think the free speech issues are incredibly important because as governments, as we are realizing here in Canada already, as um, pro-life movements around the world are realizing as pro-life movements grow, um, the pro-choice movement, the pro-abortion movement, as we could call it, they don't have the sound arguments to to combat us in in the the realm of public discourse, right? There, the, this isn't a a debate of logic anymore. And abortion advocates realize that, and so they realize that their best defense of abortion access in countries where it is already accessible is to silence the people who are trying to change that. And so free speech issues are a huge concern um, here in Canada, around the world. We've had the pleasure of working with some incredible pro-life um, lawyers here. I've worked um, very, very closely with a woman named Carol Crossan um, from Carol Crossan Constitutional Freedoms. She's wonderful. Um, this is absolutely a, a hill that is coming up that pro-lifers need to be aware of, that free speech issues are going to come under attack more and more, especially as pro-life groups build momentum. And so incredibly encouraged by the work that they're doing at ADF International. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, as we touched on at the top of the show, um, the crash course coming up here in Calgary, Alberta, August 20th and 21st. Join Peter and I um, as we talk about abortion in Canada, how we got here, where we're going and how we're going to get out of this quagmire of um, abortion access and abortions happening um, 300 times or so every day here in this nation. Um, if you can join us, please do so. Um, you can find, click the link in the description below. Um, you can join us for, for the Friday, Saturday. You can join us if you want for some pretty cool hikes and adventures on the Wednesday, Thursday leading up to the crash course. 
hang and join us for a keynote address on the Saturday evening. We'd love to see you for as much of that as you possibly can make it. And so please do. You get to see us. You get to find our, our swag that is actually happening. We literally have it in our grubby little hands, as my mother would say. Um, so I'm really excited, Peter. I'll get to see you. I'll get to see a ton of people. I hope that you guys are able to check it out. Um, we may be able to record bits and pieces of it, but we won't be recording the entire thing. So if you want to get the whole um, kit and cadoodle, you, you, you got to show up. So hopefully we'll see you there. <laughs> the whole cadoodle. If you want the whole cadoodle, uh, in Cam's words, you can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, Cam, for that. Uh, I'm excited That's for totally an expression. <laughs> totally an expression. Yeah, maybe on your side of the country. I've never heard it on this side of the country. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to everyone who is still with us. You can reach out to us with any questions, concerns, comments, or even feedback or whatever you want to share with us. Um, by reaching out to us on our website, prolifeguys.com. You can find us on your favorite social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube and you want to listen to this on your commute, you can find the Pro-Life Guys on your favorite podcast catcher or vice versa. If you're listening to this on your commute and you want to show your family on your TV and your living room all about the Pro-Life Guys podcast, you can find us by searching the Pro-Life Guys podcast on YouTube. So thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Peter. That's Cam. We are the Pro-Life Guys with the Pro-Life Guys podcast. God bless you all. And uh, go have those conversations. Go talk to people about abortion. And be do your part in changing the culture for life in the, in the face of abortion supporters and activists who are trying to promote death uh, in every way they can. So be that, be that voice for the voiceless. Be the, the, the force for change and the force for good in this cultural war and God bless you in and each and every one of you in this mission. <laughs> <laughs>